the fortunes of the wool industry are on the rise. In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, rural reporter Kevin Eichen investigates whether a fibre that's been in decline for decades is heading for a renaissance. Another fleece off the sheep's back. A product that until this season has had so little value that farmers routinely complained that they were barely covering their sharing costs. But over the past year, the price of all wool has staged a remarkable recovery, with prices in some cases almost double what they were a year ago. Last year we estimated at $4.21 a kilogram. That's across all wool types. Uh, we'll be looking somewhere around about the 5 90 cents a kilogram, maybe a bit over $6 by the end of the year. We'll just see how we go. But it's going to be that order. It, it is a very steep climb off what was, if we adjust for inflation, the lowest price in 100 years. While all wool prices have gone up, this programme is focusing on the mainstream sector that grows, processes and markets the strong or crossbred wool that makes up the bulk of what New Zealand produces. That's the wool used in carpets and soft furnishings rather than clothing. Rob Davison of Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Economic Service keeps an eye on wool prices and production along with the meat statistics. He says while that $6 a kilo is a big improvement, it's nothing like the prices farmers were getting in wool's heyday when it vied with meat as New Zealand's biggest export earner and the country was living off the sheep's back. Well, everybody can talk about the Korean wool boom back in the 1950s, but that was a real aberration in terms of why the price went up, and that was because of the Korean War. But in today's money, the price back then was a, a giddy $64 a kilogram. Uh, if you come back to the 1970s, you know, the price was was probably more around the um, $20 mark, which seems quite high today. And, you know, prices have, from that have, have shown a pretty general downward decline right up until last year. Why have prices declined so much? You have to look at several things, I guess. One is, since 1967, synthetic products really started to make inroads against wool. And synthetics have become better and better. And synthetic fibres, you have to acknowledge, are a big part of fibre consumption in, in world markets today. Hand in hand with that has been the decline in New Zealand's sheep population from a peak of about 70 million to around 33 million. That's reduced wool export earnings to a point where it accounts for only 1 to 2 per cent of export receipts. Apart from the odd flurry, wool in terms of both production and value has been steadily declining to the point where until this year it's been more of a sheep by-product rather than a co-product with meat. That's had a telling impact on the incomes of sheep and beef farmers like Anders Crowfoot of Castle Point Station on the Wararapa coast. If you look at the profitability um, sheep and beef operations and what's happened, the squeeze that's happened in the last few years, in many respects the, the drop in the price of wool actually pretty much equated to all the profits going out of, out of the operation. So there's been a huge collective sigh of relief at the turnaround. But what's triggered the price surge and the renewed demand for wool? As Rob Davison explains, it's all about supply and demand. There's a global shortage after the recession and the world is hungry for wool again. With the debt crisis and that debt bubble when it burst, 
banks were right into calling in money and finance was hard to get. So manufacturers overseas ran their inventories of wool down. They also ran their inventories of cotton down and a whole lot of commodities, particularly in the Western world. At the same time, the growing, developing, fast developing countries of China, India, South Asia, um, all kept growing about two to three times what, what the West was. So they weren't in recession. So their demand kept, kept going. Suddenly the pipeline's empty. This demand in, in these developed countries for, um, for wool, and the same for cotton, by the way, um, and then the, that caused the price to lift. So we've seen all commodity prices go up. Exporters like John Dawson, who heads the New Zealand Wool Exporters Council, are very clear where that demand is coming from. Nearly 7,000 tonnes of wool was exported to China in the month of March. I think 5,500 to 6,000 in the month of April. May will probably be down on that a bit, but that's just such an important part of our market now. They've been very active and uh, it's cooled down for a wee bit, but um, they'll come back and will grow actually. The new optimism was immediately apparent to those attending the annual congress of the International Wool Textile Organisation in China last month. It brought together growers, traders, processors and retailers from around the world, among them Peter Whiteman of Sagard Mazaral, one of New Zealand's biggest exporters. It was a very buoyant mood. All the sectors were more than happy, early stage processors, scouring, uh, spinners, weavers, tufters. Uh, of course, the further you get towards the retail end, possibly the less happy they were, but um, the sectors that we're dealing with were very happy and uh, the wool quantities in the world are still low in volume, so there'll still be solid demand and it's, it, it was very heartening from some other years that were a little depressing going to those forums. Peter Whiteman says the crunch will come, though, when the more expensive wool products reach the shops and the consumers in the next few months. The recovery is especially pleasing to the 10 to 12,000 strong wool growers who have stayed with sheep, while more and more of the farmland around them has been converted to other uses, such as dairying. Bay de la Tour, who's been farming in Hawke's Bay for more than 50 years, heads the primary wool cooperative, which had its origins back in the 1970s, and he's never lost his faith in wool. I've always been confident that cycle would turn and sheep and beef farming would become profitable again. And um, thankfully, my optimism has played out, and I think we're going into a year, or having a financial year, that will equal some of the best in my farming time. I think it goes back as far as 1973-74. We had a very good year when beef, wool, and lamb all peaked at the same time, and um, that just makes one huge difference to farmers' confidence and the bottom line. And um, I think that some farmers, particularly um, the ones that struck the very high wool sales, will find that their income has almost doubled simply because of the wool. But that doesn't mean that sheep farmers are back in clover again. Figures from Beef and Lamb New Zealand confirm that even at the higher level, wool will still only produce about 15% of the average farm revenue this year, so it still has some catching up to do with meat. Bay de la Tour says another issue that sheep and beef farmers face now is building up the supply and quality of good carpet walls again. That's been declining as more farmers moved away from the traditional dual-purpose sheep breeds such as Romney to focus on more profitable meat production. 
a matter of the sheep population decreasing, but as well as that, the standards of preparation slipping, the change in breeds which are not suitable for this type of carpet manufacturer. So it, it, it all adds up to probably creating a shortage of those good walls. The country's shearing contractors, naturally enough, are also hoping that some of the price gains will flow in their direction. They've been suffering from the poor prices as well because farmers have cut sharing to the bare minimum and in many cases have stopped sharing twice a year. Mavis and Coro Mullins run one of the country's biggest sharing operations, Paiwai Mullins, based at Dannyburg. What's happened in the last few years with sharing as a management tool rather than a product activity, there's no set pattern anymore. So looking to match workforce with client needs has become a little bit tricky. So it's going to be interesting to see what the rise in wool price is going to do to demand and you know, whether or not we're going to be able to easily satisfy you know, the requirements that are going to be asked of us. Farmers just recently are shearing when they really have to. If they don't have to, they won't. And, and now with the boost in wool prices, um, we might get our pre-lamb, our second shear. Just recently we've been doing a lot of full belly crutching because they couldn't afford, couldn't afford to shear the whole sheep. But now we might get that full shorn sheep again. They say there's also been a decline in wool preparation standards as cash-strapped farmers trim back the amount they're prepared to spend on that part of the process. The big challenge for the wool industry now is to keep the momentum going. Everyone agrees that the rapid rise in prices seen this season is largely due to the same supply and demand factor that's driving up prices for most commodities. That alone is not going to be enough to sustain a long-term wool recovery. A sheep and beef farming representative, Bruce Wills, whose Federated Farmers Meat and Fibre Chair, acknowledges that farmers are apprehensive about how long it will last. We're very encouraged with where the prices have got to at present, but there's a nervousness about how sustainable these prices are and, and, and where we go from here. As we speak at the minute, I've got 30-odd bales of wool in the shed, and I'm thinking, boy, I need to probably move those um, reasonably soon because I just don't know where this price is going to go. And, and something that doubles in, in not much more than 12 months very rarely sustains that sort of increase. So um, we've got to do some work to cement these prices in. Exporter John Dawson says the biggest challenge facing the industry is to make sure prices are sustainable after their rapid rise. What we've seen is, if anything, that movement's happened at a much too rapid pace. And the month of March, if you look at the indicator, it went up over a dollar in New Zealand in, the, in a month. And it's very hard for customers offshore, even customers in Australasia, to, to actually handle movements like that. So... Our challenge as an industry is to actually keep growing the demand for wool. So, while everyone agrees over the need to keep the ball rolling, there's plenty of debate about how that should be done. It boils down to whether a cash-strapped industry should put its efforts into a big new international campaign to re-educate the consumer about the wonders of wool, or focus on promoting only New Zealand wool through commercial branding initiatives. 
The generic approach that's creating great excitement in the industry here and internationally centres on a new campaign for wool launched in the UK last year with the Prince of Wales as its patron. Now, since I launched this initiative at the start of 2010, I have been astonished by the momentum it has gained around the world. This whole initiative originated when it began to become apparent that the price farmers were being paid for their wool had dropped to such low levels that many were having to throw away their wool or were leaving farming altogether, and the numbers of sheep were falling dramatically. The last straw, as far as I was concerned, was the news that a new breed of sheep had been developed which didn't require shearing, astonishingly called Easy Care. Well, I'm afraid I could bear it no longer. As the campaign's chair, John Thorley, explains, the aim is to get consumers hooked on woollen products again by promoting their natural qualities. We feel that there's been such a lack of proper, deep understanding of wool. It's been lost, that we really need to regenerate knowledge, interest and all that sort of thing in wool. In today's world, we're looking for something which is sustainable, looking for something which is renewable and natural and, and all those buzzwords which have to do with removing the need to drain the world's fossil resources. And that's where wool comes in. The Campaign for Wool has just had its New Zealand launch in Wellington. Heading the campaign here is Stephen Fuchs, who also chairs the New Zealand Council of Wool Interests, an umbrella group representing most parts of the industry. It's easy to say that that generic work's been done. It was done 30 years ago. IWS did a brilliant job, created a, a mark for wool that was recognised with Coca-Cola and Mercedes-Benz uh, as a symbol. But in the last 20 years, nothing has really been done. The generation has slipped by without having that awareness of wool. And I think that's where the campaign for wool is so necessary. A range of promotional activities is flowing from the campaign, which will include wool being featured as the major theme at the National Agricultural Field Days this month. There's huge enthusiasm for the campaign among wool exporters, merchants and brokers, and some farmers who are contributing to the costs. The government's also considering support. But there are others who aren't quite so enthusiastic. Bruce Wills says plenty of farmers will question the value of generic promotion after seeing their wool checks diminishing, despite the millions they've paid into promotional schemes in the past. I've seen hundreds of millions of dollars of my wool grower levy money in, in uh, collaboration with other wool growers poured into generic marking over, over many decades, particularly through the New Zealand Wool Board and, and various international wool secretariats and the like. What did it do for prices? It gave us ever-decreasing returns. So I, I don't think you can blame wool growers for being a little bit cynical with some of this um, generic promotion. But I think there is a place for both, and, and certainly with the profile of HRH Prince of Wales, we see it working. We've got open minds. We may put our hands in the pockets. Running alongside the wool campaign are new commercial initiatives that aim to connect New Zealand wool and its growers to the buyers of rugs and carpets at the top end of the market in the United States and Europe. Like the campaign for wool, they're also pushing the natural attributes of wool, its greenness in an environmentally conscious market. Wool Partners International, the wool trading arm of the rural servicing company PGG Wrightson, is focusing on the European carpet market initially under its new Leneve brand. 
The Chief Operating Officer, Craig Osborne, says the first Leneve carpets are now on sale in the UK. It's an ethical brand, so it's, it's about being able to tell consumers, um, assure consumers that the fibre has been produced in an ethical and responsible way and that that has been maintained through the supply chain and the fact that we've got full traceability of the fibre all the way from the farm through the manufacturing steps uh, to the finished carpet. The whole target of those programs is to persuade end customers to pay more for the product, to persuade manufacturers to pay more for the product so that ultimately there's more that can be paid back to the farmer as a premium or royalty for their wool. On the other side of the Atlantic, the Just Shorn rug and carpet range has been rolled out into more than a 100 top-end stores across the United States. That's being done under a joint venture between Elders New Zealand and Bay de la Tour's primary wool cooperative. The Just Shorn brand is, is actually a partnership with the retailer and CCA Global Partners that we're dealing with in America are one of the biggest flooring businesses in the world. They are the biggest seller of wool carpets in the United States. They are working with us to lift sales of, of woolen products and um, this particular brand uh, and the carpets have a tracer fibre developed by AgriSearch which authenticates the wool that's actually in the carpet. This is something that's always been a problem with, with wool manufacturers overseas substitute our good New Zealand wool for rougher wools from other parts of the world to actually bring the price down. Also woven into the Just Shorn brand is another initiative between the farmer-owned investment company Wool Equities and Romney Growers. Under that scheme, New Zealand wool is made into hand-knotted rugs in Nepal, then shipped to the US for sale to wealthy customers who can expect to pay up to almost $10,000 US for each rug. It's too early to know how successful these initiatives will be, but the strong wool industry has drawn some inspiration from the smaller, fine wool sector that broke away from the mainstream industry. It set up its own marketing structure through the New Zealand Merino Company, which sells most of the fine wool clip. Merino has built an international profile for itself helped by the success of clothing brands such as Icebreaker. The Wool Equities chairman, Manawatu farmer Cliff Heath, is one of those who's been battling for years to give wool a boost. He says the sector needs to take lessons from the dairy industry as well, and the vision that led to the creation of Fonterra. That vision has, has never been in the wool industry, and I believe that we're ready now to present that vision to wool growers generally, that here is a way that we can build a company, build value and seriously increase returns for wool on a sustainable level and get the returns out of product like Fonterra, not out of wool, the ingredient. Fonterra, of course, is a farmer cooperative and it's the attempt by farmers to set up a new cooperative that would seek to control more than half of the strong wool supply that's triggered the latest wave of discord in a sometimes fractious industry. The cooperative plan involves buying the Wool Partners International Company as a starting point. The first attempt was abandoned earlier this year when it failed to get the full farmer backing it needed. But those involved haven't given up and they're working on a new plan. One of the organisers, Banks Peninsula farmer Mark Shadbolt, says having an integrated system is essential to Wool's recovery. And he says farmers need to be in control as well. The historic model has been for growers to send their wool off and lose interest in it once it goes outside the farm gate. And on that basis, 
we've had no control of what's happened to it. If we take an interest, we know exactly the process, the costs, and the end value, and we share in that. And there is room for us to own wool further down the pipeline uh, towards the market so that we can extract more value. And there's, there's a range of opportunities that we're looking at at the moment in terms of pools and contracts, uh, for example, and obviously then relationships with retailers whereby we get royalties back that we can add value back to the grower. So it's important the grower connects with the market, understands what the market wants, what the product is that we are required to grow, and get rewarded accordingly. Mark Shadbolt says they've learned some lessons from the industry response to the first failed co-op bid, and they're now talking about forming partnerships with existing players. But the attempt to form a second farmer wool co-op hasn't gone down well with the existing primary wool cooperative. And although there have been exploratory talks about joining forces, nothing has come of that yet. 529. 529 JSB. 529's now with JSP. Those farmers who say they need to control the wool pipeline to thrive are highly critical of the long-established onshore wool supply system, with its multitude of merchants, brokers and exporters who still buy and sell about half of the wool through the weekly auctions. Critics like Wadarapa farmer Anders Crowfoot say the existing structure is too fragmented to do the job. Right now there are a huge number of links in the supply chain going through and a hundred years ago with poor communications it probably made quite a bit of sense to have somebody talking to the farmer, getting it into town, then somebody taking it from town into the centre and then from the centre onto a you know, scour or whatever, then from there onto a ship, and all those links came up for quite a practical reason. You've got to question this day and age with modern communications whether you actually need all those different links. Sharing contractor Mavis Mullins, who wears another hat as a director of two Māori farming incorporations, was involved in an earlier attempt to integrate the industry and expresses the frustration that many farmers feel. There's some systematic issues there that, um, unfortunately, this, the, the recent rise in price masks. Awesome that there's so many um, initiatives that are being driven through, but again, I think, well, why hasn't this been done earlier? You know, for goodness sake. You know, farmers are, we're our own worst enemies. We almost hang back to take control of our own industry. This is our industry, and yet it is... Um, we've been often marginalised in it, farmers, because we don't take that investment stance. But exporters, brokers and merchants strongly disagree that the existing structure within New Zealand needs fixing. They saw the cooperative proposal to control most of the strong wool supply as a threat to their own livelihoods and campaigned vigorously against it. Broker and merchant Philippa Wright says economically there'd be little to gain from shortening the pipeline. The actual benefit of changing anything within the structure from, as we said, farm to ship, at the moment would be lucky to achieve a 20 cent per kilo increase throughout that whole pipeline. So really we have to look at um, the other end and that's why I'm so adamant that we need to concentrate on the consumer and the retailer and market our wool where it is being bought. But moves to consolidate the wool supply network are underway. They include plans to integrate the country's scouring operations that clean the wool before processing 
and proposals to channel most of the wool through large-scale superstores at key points close to ports. As well, an increasing amount of wool is now being sold online. Exporter Peter Whiteman points out that streamlining is happening without having to dismantle the much-criticised structure. And as exporters now, we're starting to buy more wool directly, so there's only one owner from the farmer to the branded carpet manufacturer or the knitting yarn manufacturer. So we are streamlining it ourselves as we go along, but the auction is still a big part of the industry and uh, a lot of farmers, they really like the price clarity that an auction provides and they're prepared to pay for that. While the wool industry establishment says nothing's broken, that hasn't been the view of the Minister of Agriculture, David Carter, who's taken his own steps to unify the industry. He intervened when farmers pulled the plug two years ago on the wool levy that paid for research and other value-building activities. That, in essence, to me, said farmers had lost confidence. It was a vote of no confidence in the future of their industry. I never accepted that this industry had no future at all. Uh, we got the strategy together. We've then got the wool unity group together because one of the things the strategy pointed out is you had to get some unity back into this industry. By and large, I think that's been achieved. There's been quite a lot of tension still around some of the commercial structures and various uh, attempts to get a more farmer cooperative type structure there. But generally speaking, the industry has been far more responsible in their public uh, criticisms of each other, showing a degree of unity, and I think that's something the farmers themselves have picked up on and developed their own confidence in the product. There are mixed views on whether the Wool Unity Group has achieved anything tangible so far, but David Carter points to one positive outcome. It's allowed him to get government funding for a more coordinated approach to wool research and development. But through all that, the question remains, are we seeing a true recovery or renaissance for wool? Again, it depends on who you talk to, but there's definitely a new mood of optimism running through the industry and a common view that wool will have a brighter future, provided the initiatives underway actually work. In the past 10 or 15 years, there's been a few false starts that have petered out. This one feels very different. We're seeing uh, strong demand in China, uh, particularly in the contract sector and in hotels uh, for woolen products. Uh, we're also seeing new products being developed um, in more in fabrics than flooring. I am nervous about where prices are. I am nervous about how sustainable they are. I haven't yet been convinced to go out and get rams and focus more on the wool than the, than the meat. I'm not yet convinced that uh, this is the, the beginning of a new dawn for wool. We kind of let the genetics go a bit. We've let the standards go a bit. You know, we've taken training off the radar. You know, these kind of things are not clever. So, with any luck, we'll all start to think a little bit more about what we want this industry to be. Provided the focus is on premium products, then I believe it's capable of sitting alongside things like silk, and I'd like to think that a good proportion of the product is, is processed onshore. This latest price rise, if we can keep it going, will probably put us back at least with the wine industry, or not, if not ahead of it. In fact, I look forward to the day, probably in less than 10 years' time, when we see sheep conversions, the dairy going back into sheep. That Insight was written and presented by Kevin Eichen. It was produced by Philip Tolley with technical production by William Saunders.